Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and to get an update on economics, markets, and other topics of interest for institutional investors. Each week, I'm joined by QIC's Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Alison. A lot going on in the world at the moment, in markets and whatnot, so let's get into it. Absolutely. Let's get snappy. So I wanted to start with the Bank of Japan and some interesting announcements, or perhaps more ambiguous announcements, really. Uh, in relation to its yield curve policy. It hasn't given up on the policy completely, but it has talked about the 1% cap that it had previously imposed in July as now being a reference point. Yeah, Alison, that's right. So the Bank of Japan, as you know, has been fixing that 10-year yield on Japanese bonds in, you know, in the same way that the RBA had somewhat notoriously fixed the uh, Aussie three. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Aussie three yield yield, uh, you know, just post-COVID. Now, you know, the sort of policy, the yield curve control that you mentioned is designed to keep interest rates low. But the problem is when the market begins to think that the policy is unsustainable, say because inflation remains high and sticky like in Japan at the moment, then investors will start selling bonds in order to avoid capital losses in anticipation that the bank, in this case Bank of Japan, will have to abandon the uh, yield curve control policy altogether. So to keep the interest rate fixed to keep the policy in place, the bank, Bank of Japan, has to step in and buy bonds once the, the bond yields start to go up because um, investors are selling. But here's the rub. By buying bonds, the Bank of Japan's injecting yen into the system, and that's placing downward pressure on the currency and the dramatic devaluation of the yen that we've seen places further pressure on domestic prices and inflation you know, further unsettling markets. So we have that vicious cycle occurring, uh, Alison. So the BODGE, the Bank of Japan, effectively in this latest round, raised the bond rate they're targeting by setting the rate that they're trying to target at the upper bound of their range at 1%. They did. And it is a bit of a vicious cycle because interestingly, notwithstanding the excellent articulation of the dynamics there, it didn't really impress the markets and the yen has fallen to a new low. So What's the reluctance of the bonds to change this policy? That's right. And so it is a policy fraught with dangers. The market doesn't buy it. That's that's not going to work. So Japan, why are they doing this? Well, Japan's in an interesting place. Japan had really strong growth over the first half of 23, even outperforming the stellar growth that was seen in the US. We talk a lot about the US and how strong its economy been. Well, Japan, you know, even better still. But unlike the US, inflation in Japan has been falling only very gradually a lower rate than the US, but it's fallen only from the start of the year from 3.6% to now about 3.2%, virtually nothing. Whereas the US has sort of gone from 5.8% down to 3.5%. Now, what the Bank of Japan desperately wants to do is take advantage of this post-COVID world of high inflation to entrench higher positive inflation expectations in the economy. And they can't do this if they tighten monetary policy too early. And so what it's doing, it's resisting that market pressure to raise rates, just easing back on that yield curve control policy. I don't think they'll be in much of a hurry to abandon the policy or to shift from, you know, they're still holding rates negative at the short end of the yield curve. They won't be shifting that quickly from negative to positive either, I don't think. It's a really interesting point about the psychology of the market. 
Interestingly, the Japanese government has just come out and announced a stimulus package of 17 trillion mm. yen to combat the impacts of inflation. So I wonder <laughs> if there's a message in there for markets as well that maybe inflation is a bit stickier. Yeah, Matthew, well, on that point, you know, it, it's, it's a, a funny sort of fiscal policy we've seen in the US. The Inflation Reduction Act has actually been to stimulate the economy and make inflation, you know, put even more pressure on inflation. Yeah. So I don't know what policymakers yeah, on fiscal are doing these days. Well, no, that's absolutely right. It's anything, it's obviously inflationary. But can the bodge stick at 1% given the market continues to sell the yen? No, it can't. And the yen above 150 seems to be a line in the sand for the bank and the uh, policymakers. A lot, Alison, will depend on where the Fed and other central banks take their interest rates. Okay. If the Fed and ECB and, and Bank of England all the other major policymakers are at the top of their tightening cycles, which it seems now, particularly, you know, given the overnight statements by the Fed, then that'll give the Bank of Japan and actually the RBA, for that matter, some breathing space by taking pressure off the yen and allow them to keep that yield curve control target at 1%. Yeah, look, certainly it does appear we're getting closer to the top of that cycle. The Fed did indeed pause in its meeting in early November, and we've had the Bank of England overnight also decide to pause. So perhaps we are getting closer to that top of cycle. Yeah, that's right. You are listening to Alison Hill and QIC's Take 10 podcast where I'm discussing markets and economics with Dr. Matthew Peter. Matt, you made a comparison between Japan and the US in terms of the respective strength of these economies. And I think that's a really interesting comparison. But perhaps if we take it a bit more global, let's have a look at Europe, which has been really very weak. It's got negative growth in Q3 and no growth over the last year. So not surprisingly, the ECB has halted its tightening cycle, but the Fed has signaled that their tightening cycle might have also come to an end, as we were just alluding to. That's notwithstanding the fact that growth rates, the GDP, is almost at 5% in Q3. That's quite remarkable. So well, do you think the Fed should remain on hold, given the growth rate's been so strong? Well, yeah. Well, the thing about the Fed, they're no, no longer looking in the rearview mirror, I don't think. You know, what they're doing is they're looking forward more. The outlook in the US is turning potentially ugly for the US economy. Latest data showed the manufacturing sector is now contracting. Employment in manufacturing uh, is showing a very sharp pullback. And, and market expectations, too, are predicting quite a radical turnaround in the economy with uh, growth expected to slow from that 5% odd handle that you mentioned to a, a sub 1% rate. And remaining sub 1%, which is quite significantly under potential growth, remaining sub 1% over the, the first half of 2024. And if those forecasts are right, every single component practically within the uh, economy, every single sector, is there's hardly a bright spot for that economy. Now, of course, <laughs> forecasters like ourselves who have that view as well, <laughs> we've been wrong before, Alison. Only but, occasionally but, much. <laughs> only occasionally. <laughs> but look, also, real-time GDP tracking estimates are also signalling quite a sharp drop-off in growth. And there's one estimate that's quite closely followed by the market. That's the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now tracker, and that's indicating that Q3 GDP growth is currently tracked around uh, 1%. So to us, it looks like the Fed is probably uh, done and dusted on the basis of that uh, economic outlook. Yeah, the forward-looking numbers really seem to have turned on a bit of a dime from what has been this case of US exceptionalism. As I say, just very recently with that uh, 5% print on GDP to now some very strong turnarounds in data. So perhaps that a tightening of monetary policy is really starting to take hold. Matt, mm. I'm going to press you a bit further, getting you to work for your money today. <laughs> and we're going to go further afield. Or actually, maybe it's not. Maybe it's closer to home with Australia. How is Australia comparing to, you know, we've, we've gone through Japan, Europe and US. 
What about us? What about at home? Oh, well, so, well I, I get what you mean. We're certainly jumping from one continent to the other. So, <laughs> so look, look on growth uh, with Australia. I reckon we look more like Europe than either the US or Japan. Well, that's not necessarily good news. We think Europe's heading for a recession. No, 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 Alison, no, not that extreme. My point, I suppose, really is we certainly in the first half of the year haven't been shooting the lights out like Japan and the US have. So whilst we haven't sort of had that zero growth or negative growth that Europe's had, we've certainly been below trend as opposed to way above trend in Japan and the US. However, it's the flip side's the, the, the situation on inflation. We look more like Japan on the inflation front than the US or Europe. Well, maybe I'll push back a little bit there as well. Oh. So Japan's inflation's around about a bit over 3% and in Australia we're two percentage points higher at a bit over 5%. Man, Alison, you're not letting me get away with anything today. Look, that's quite right. You're right about that differential. Let me clarify again. Uh, you're really holding me to be be clear what I'm saying here, quite rightly so. Look, our inflation rate has been sticky and slow in coming down is what I mean in terms of the comparison with Japan. That's what's happened in Japan in contrast to the US and Europe where that inflation rate's been coming down more rapidly. Okay. So last week we did talk about the RBA and you predicted that there'll be another rate hike on Tuesday. Now, that's obviously not due to the growth outlook because we've talked about that's been slower and below trend. So perhaps it has to be about inflation. Yeah, that's right. Look, inflation in the US and Europe is expected to return to its target in about a year's time. Unfortunately, here in Australia, that time horizon is closer to two years. So what about the RBA versus the Bank of Japan? So from what you've said, despite the stickiness of inflation, the bodge is reluctant to tighten because of entrenched deflationary expectations. We don't have that in Australia. No, we sure don't. Look, Australian expectations have just pushed through a decade high at around 2.7%. And that's 20 basis points above the RBA's target. And remember, that's a 10-year forward expectation. So on average, yeah. they're expecting it to be 20. In other words, they're not expecting the RBA to get it back into target for some time. Now, the RBA certainly can't ignore the possibility of inflation expectations shifting even higher if they don't convince the market that they're serious about in getting inflation uh, back down to their target within at least my lifetime. <laughs> now, all of this change in policy settings and whatnot has been affecting markets. Uh, how has the market been taking the news of a likely end to Fed tightening cycle and the changes to policy we've been seeing in Japan? Yeah, some pretty big moves, Matthew, and probably in line with what you would expect. You know, we've talked in prior weeks about how much we've seen the nominal bond yield increase, you know, briefly popping over 5%. It's now pulled back quite quite substantially with bond yields rallying across the 30-year, the 10-year, and even, even somewhat towards the shorter end as well, as people have factored in the federal rates may not go further from here. You know, equity markets, which had been a little bit soft on the back of all of those changes, particularly the real yield changes, are now starting to, to rebound a little bit. So they're being a little bit more confident that perhaps the Fed is done. Underlying all of that, we've had the Aussie dollar not changed too much, really, but it's gone from, you know, 63 to 64 cents. Yeah, so that rally in bonds that we've seen, does that represent an ongoing upside risk to equity prices, do you think, Ellison? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I'm not sure that, that the increase in bond yields was ever fully priced into equity markets. Maybe equity mm -hmm. markets looked through that noise a little bit and thought it was perhaps temporary. And maybe mm -hmm. now it's coming back into more of a normalised range. Notwithstanding that, we did see the S&P and the NASDAQ briefly sort of dip into contractionary territory, which is, you know, a 10% decrease from their July highs. But they have rebounded a bit since then. So, look, my perspective is that 
you know, valuations are always, you know, markets do like to look through things. But if we are seeing the US economy turn, we are seeing a slowdown in growth, we are seeing all these other associated sort of manufacturing slowdowns and so on, that is troubling for earnings. And earnings are still being yep. very strongly uh, anticipated by the uh, by the analysts as being very positive and above trend. So there does seem mm. to need to be a little bit of a, a dilemma there about which way markets might go from here. And I think as a result, we could see a little bit of volatility. Yeah, it looks like the markets aren't are still sort of looking in the rearview mirror, at least the earnings reports, you know, very strong earnings out of the, the strength in the economy. But looking forward with the economy slowing, those earnings outlooks uh, seem pretty optimistic. I would tend to agree, tend to agree. And the bond markets tend to be a little bit more forward looking. And I think we have seen that reflected in bond market moves, which have been quite, quite strong over the last few days. Matt, as we said, lots to talk about this week. It was great chatting to you. And thanks also to our listeners for taking 10.